welcome to the Mask Lab podcast. My name is Lalitha Vasudevan. I'm the director of the Media and Social Change Lab, and I'm so pleased to be joined here today by Lou Clarivas, who is an associate lecturer at UMass Boston and teaches in the Global Affairs program, and Sonali Rajan, who is assistant professor of health education here at Teachers College. At the Media and Social Change Lab, we've continued to think about gun violence. We've continued to think about not only the impacts of gun violence, but also the ways in which this phenomenon, this this tragic phenomenon in this country um, is narrativized in the media, in the ways in which stories are told about who is victims of gun violence. So I think we're just going to engage in conversation together and really to, to figure out what is at issue in terms of gun violence, in terms of the many uh, types of impact that gun violence has in our communities. MaskLab is a hub for multimodal and digital scholarship that explores the relationship between media and our changing society. We support, curate, and create media intended to spark dialogue and social change and the development of pedagogy that uses media to foster civic engagement. MaskLab is located in the Communication, Media, and Learning Technology Design Program at Teachers College, Columbia University. Sonali and Lou have participated in conversations with the Media and Social Change Lab before, um, both to bring a screening of the film, the documentary Newtown, um, about a year and a half ago, that documented the aftermath of the Sandy Hook massacre um, in 2012, and also to uh, engage in a long-form conversation about Lou's book, Rampage Nation. Remind me again of the rest of the title, Lou. Securing America from Mass Shootings. Yes, that is a both sobering and alarming uh, title. And and maybe we can start out with a question, Sonali, you had, um, which is quite simply, why are the rates of gun violence so high in the U.S.? Why is this an issue here? And thank you, Lolita, for having us here today. So um, really, actually, to speak to Lou's book where he talks about this, but it's access to guns. Compared to most other developed nations, uh, we have relatively easy access to guns. And there's a huge number of firearms in circulation in the U.S. as well. So that contributes to just sort of this persistent problem or or epidemic, as some have have called it. Is that fair to say? Yeah. But first of all, thank you for having me here today. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, we don't have really good numbers on this, but we have some rough estimates. And uh, when you think about it, it's kind of it's kind of mind-boggling uh, that there's approximately one gun per person mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. if I could put that in a little bit of context, yeah. uh, 30 to 40 percent of all households own a gun. So it's not like you go to you know every house has a gun. You know, if it, <laughs> right, for right. Pe- for people who will listen to this overseas and are contemplating a trip to the United States, I assure you, not every household and not every business has a gun. Yeah. Uh, however, um, there are about, you know, somewhere roughly around a third, maybe two-fifths of all households own wow. a gun. And the other interesting statistic relating to this is that uh, I think it's about half of all guns are owned by about 3% of the population. So there are, if you will, kind mm-hmm. of gun, it depends on what side of the spectrum you are. They're either mm-hmm. gun collectors or enthusiasts or perhaps gun hoarders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe that'll be a new show for TLC in the future, gun, gun hoarders. hoarders. Uh, but I, the simple way to think about this is you can't have gun violence without 
guns. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you start with a real basic premise like mm -hmm. that, the answer kind of uh, falls into place. Yeah. That point that gun violence can't happen without guns seems so simple and yet so hard. It seems like such a big hurdle in terms of the argument about why we should do something about it. And you're both nodding and it makes me think that maybe you both think that we should be doing something about <laughs> high rates of guns and high rates of gun violence in the country. Well, so, um, I do, I have opinions on this, as it turns out. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> so the obesity epidemic is a great analogy for me because we talk, in the prevention of obesity, we talk about genetics, we look at green space, we look at the built environment, we mm -hmm. look at uh, school food choices, vending machines. I mean, you name it, we have looked at it, we mm -hmm. have studied it, it has been funded through federal dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, we have, we have a very solid, comprehensive understanding of how to prevent and reduce mm -hmm. issues of obesity and related chronic disease in this country. Gun violence is the only public health issue I know about, or I can think of, where we see the issue and we say, let's talk about every other thing surrounding it, but not the source, as Lou says, not mm -hmm. the, the, the immediate cause of the the violence, mm -hmm. you know, we can, we're talking about mental health or video games or all sorts of things, but we don't talk about the actual access to guns. And that's, that's extraordinary yeah. <laughs> that we have that, extraordinary in that we, we are even having that debate and, and entertaining that debate. It, it blows my mind. Every time I give a book talk and this comes up, of course, I always hear the other side of, mm. of this, which is that there is a second amendment and it does say that, you know, you have a right to, to keep and bear arms. Mm -hmm. And so... Basically, that creates a political tension in our society, which opens us, you know, up to this very intense and emotional and uh, and, and robust debate. Yeah. My response to the the Second Amendment piece in that context is, the right is to bear an arm with the assumption that it's you're bearing that arm safely mm -hmm. and responsibly, and so gun reform is about helping us as a community do that since we are a society that is looking to coexist with firearms. I don't know anybody, Republican or Democrat, who wants to coexist with firearms dangerously. I mean, right? right? So it's, it's, it's not... Wild, wild west. <laughs> right. And I, and I think with the firearm comes enormous responsibility. And the, and the public opinion data, it's really interesting. It does speak to Many gun owners recognize that responsibility and mm -hmm. what a gun is capable of. Mm -hmm. To say you have a four-day waiting period, for example, to purchase a firearm, mm -hmm. um, that we know could reduce the likelihood of someone just going in and purchasing a firearm out of mm -hmm. anger, um, someone with a history of domestic abuse, um, those kinds of people where we know that then often leads to fatal right. um, interaction outcomes, outcomes yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, these are... Like four, what's four days in mm -hmm. the in the grand scheme of one one's life to, yeah. to get a firearm? I mean, I think gun reform is something that is ex can be extraordinarily reasonable, mm -hmm. and something that the majority of Americans would agree with, and we would all feel safer in so many instances. Going to movies, going to school, going to the mall, existing in, in a, going to a place of worship. Um, by saying, hey, let's just put some reasonable regulations around this. And, mm -hmm. and things that, as Lou has said, have been illustrated in the peer-reviewed research to be effective. It seems like you both are talking about the different arenas in which to 
address, interrupt, and transform what's happening with gun violence and uh, gun acquisition even. What are these arenas? Um, and of course, the, the, the sort of lingering question is, does gun reform actually work? Um, but the other thing that, that I think has... Uh, <coughs> spoiler alert, we're yeah. going to be, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, right, it's sort of a rhetorical question, right? And, and I wonder if you could, I mean, if you, either of you have something to say about what works? What gets gun violence to stop? Other than getting rid of the guns, which is an important piece of this, right? Right. I th- well, can we, can we go we work backwards? We're not getting rid of the guns. Yes. Right? I, mean, there's, 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 I want to come back to my earlier point. There's a Second Amendment. As right. I think it's important as gun violence prevention researchers to be, for us to be clear that we are not anti-Second Amendment. I think right. that I th- gets conflated all the time. I know Lou gets his fair share of right. debate um, well, on I'm, this. I, but I, I always like to tell people that what I really am is Pro Article 3, that's that section that a lot of people forget comes before the Second Amendment, which says that there is a court, a federal judiciary, and uh, I give a lot of respect and deference to the federal judiciary. And if the Supreme Court says there's an individual right to bear arms, there is an individual right, well, my opinion, but my view, there, there is an individual right to bear arms. Uh, so does gun control work? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, you know, uh, t- t- gee, thanks, Sonali, for spoiling that. <laughs> I know uh, the listeners are on the edge of, this, edge right, of their right. seats. <laughs> um, we have a lot of research from the public health and criminal justice and gun violence prevention mm-hmm. uh, academic communities that, that <clears throat> looks, and, and from the political science community, that looks at this. You know, just to give you a couple of, just off the top of my head, just some, some real simple things that have gone a long way. Uh, one is you know, mandating suicide uh, prevention and mental health awareness mm-hmm. classes all, you know, as part of a concealed carry licensing scheme. Mm-hmm. Harvard looked at this recently in, in, in Utah where the, gun, where the gun community actually, mm-hmm. the gun owners community work with uh, public health researchers to kind of make this part of the, you know, educational module. Uh, and um, they've seen some, you know, some progress in the mm-hmm. area of you know, limiting suicide. Because it, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that it's one thing to say I'm going to, you know, commit suicide, uh, but when you attempt it with a firearm, it's really, you know... The completion rate. Right, the is, completion yeah, rate. Yeah, right, it's very it, high. It's very yeah, high. Exactly. So, um, you know, th- this is something that has alarmed people in the public mm-hmm. health area, and they want to, you know, try to bring attention to, you know, if we can do better at training people and alerting them, you know, to what are the things to think about and look for, mm-hmm. uh, we might reduce a good portion of the suicides that are perpetrated with, with firearms. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great example is safe, safe storage laws, mm-hmm. laws that mandate that if your gun is not on your person, mm-hmm. at, 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 you, know, for, you know, if you're carrying it for protection or whatever reason, or if you're not currently using it, it needs to be safely stored at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, we know uh, also has a, a success rate in the area of preventing accidents, in particular mm-hmm. accidents involving, you know, minors. Mm-hmm. Um, licensing schemes. Licensing schemes you know, you would think like, okay, great, we're going to screen people, but it goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. When you when you license things, people are more careful with their firearm, and then it's you also can't have sales of a firearm uh, without it being recorded, mm-hmm. and therefore, you're less likely to, to sell your your weapon to someone who might be a you know, as the NRA says, a bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so a good guy you know helps facilitate a bad guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, from my own research. Uh, you know, assault weapons bans and, and large capacity magazine bans or, or restrictions. 
um, you know, they do save lives. We have, you know, we've been able to document that they can reduce the, they don't eliminate mass shootings, but we can show that, you know, when they're in place in the jurisdictions where they are in place, they reduce the number of lives lost in mass shootings. Mm -hmm. So there are, there, 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 there's a whole, you know, I can go on. There, there's a lot of examples where gun control does work. Mm -hmm. And these are things that have, you know, gone uh, before federal courts and they've been upheld using the Heller standard. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's certainly some success to be mm -hmm. pointed at. For those who might not be familiar, can you say a little bit about the Heller decision? Yeah, the Heller decision was a case that involved the District of Columbia. There was a, a basically a plaintiff. His name was uh, Dick Heller, mm -hmm. who, who uh, felt that the District of Columbia ban on handguns went too far, and, and Heller felt that uh, that the ban itself violated his Second Amendment right. Uh, up until that point, the Supreme Court really hadn't assessed whether there was a individual right, like whether an individual American had the right to keep and bear arms. And uh, as a result of that case, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court said, yes, indeed, um, individuals do have a right to keep and bear arms. Uh, and um, the D.C. ban went too far because it was an outright prohibition. Those examples helped to really dis disentangle the phrase gun reform from the, the perception that that means eliminate guns. Right. Right? That, that legislation, policies, rules can be put in place that uphold that right while still creating safety. Yeah, and if I can add one other thing. Yeah. We know this too from public opinion surveys that a lot of people who are gun owners and even a good sizable chunk of NRA mm -hmm. members uh, support a lot of these measures. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you talk to most NRA members, they don't really have a problem with universal background checks. Mm -hmm. Right, the idea that we can, you know, if you got to go, if you're going to go buy a gun from a, you know, a gun like a federally licensed firearms dealer, yeah. you have to do a background check. Well, if you're going to go buy one at a gun show, yeah, I'm okay with spending an extra five, ten bucks, and mm -hmm. you know, having the the background check done there as well. How do we understand the implications for gun reform, given where we landed with the midterms? Gun reform was an important issue. We know this from exit polls. It was an important issue going into this mm -hmm. election for voters, particularly for Democrats, but also for Republicans. So for Republicans, uh, this was an important election because this was an opportunity to basically chip away at some of the laws that mm -hmm. have passed since Heller. They want to have more protections for gun rights mm -hmm. and for gun ownership. On the flip side of that, uh, for Democrats, and pr maybe a little bit more for Democrats, gun Gun reform was a big issue uh, because, and, and in large part, not because of gun violence in general, but in specific because of mass shootings. Mm -hmm. I think mass shootings have really brought gun violence uh, to the forefront. Mm -hmm. It's certainly scared a lot of people, even though they're a minority of, you know, they're, they're a small part of the gun violence problem. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're the most high profile and the most, uh, I think, disturbing uh, for the general public. And so a lot of people on the Democratic side want even more uh, tougher and more stringent gun laws on the books. Mm -hmm. So they were motivated uh, in part by addressing gun violence or in part by gun policy. However, mm -hmm. I, I foresee very little happening mm -hmm. for a very simple reason. Um, and if I could put my political scientist hat on, mm -hmm. um, the, you don't need a degree in political science to figure this out. I want to just to <laughs> let people know. Okay, uh, the House can pass all the legislation it wants. Uh, it could pass a law that outright bans guns. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Or it can just pass something real simple as 
you know, universal background checks. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it will not get any traction in the Senate. You know, I'm not a betting guy, but if I had to go to Vegas and and lay down a lot of money, I would say Donald Trump would veto it. Mm -hmm. So I don't see gun reform making any headway on the federal level Mm -hmm. with one exception. Mm -hmm. The exception is that the Democrats are in a position, and this doesn't apply just to gun reform. This applies to the entire Democratic agenda, Uh, for example, health care or education. If I were advising the Democrats, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not. We'll make sure they get this m- But maybe I am. Maybe we should uh, send this over I, I, to Nancy. I, 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 would, say, I would say, well, I can give advice to the Republicans, too. Uh, I, I, veto. <laughs> that, that's simple. Veto, veto everything. <laughs> but if I were advising the Democrats, I would say, like, this is your opportunity to do two things. One, set the agenda for 2021. Have the hearings you want to have on, mm-hmm. on laws. Figure out what's going to be a smart and crafty law mm-hmm. going forward. And get it in place so that when, if there is a shift in 2021, it's already on the books. You got it ready to go. You can, you know, maybe tweak it a little bit and it's ready to go. And in the process, what happens when you do that is that you educate the public. Mm. So they could take the next two years to prepare the public and educate the public about gun violence. Or, and again, about anything. It could be healthcare, It could be education reform. Uh, but this is a real uh, opportunity for the Democrats. So at the federal level, there's that. If I can add one last thing, mm-hmm. and then I promise Sonali, I'll... I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> no, you I'll, are. I'll, I'll this is great. This, no. this is uh, great. <laughs> taking the pressure off. <laughs> no, no, it's, and if, uh, if I can add one other thing, where there has been great strides mm-hmm. and where I will, I would predict you will see more strides is at the state level. Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, I think the gun control movement or the, whatever they want to call themselves, mm-hmm. the gun safety movement, kind of woke up and was like, oh, you know what? Why don't we, if we can't make headway on the federal level, let's start you know, mm-hmm. chipping away one by one mm-hmm. at the states. Just today it was announced that um, you know, the, the gun control movement has begun a, the process of putting f- forward a referendum in 2020 mm. in Florida that would uh, ban assault weapons and uh, large capacity magazines. Mm-hmm. So basically, and this is something that we've seen that's been very successful, uh, taking a page out of you know the playbook of the gun control movement in the state of Washington, mm-hmm. where they're, they've basically decided we're gonna just bypass the state legislature. Oh, California did this too. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna take this right to the people. Yeah present them with referenda questions and Mm -hmm. let them vote on those questions and then that will become the law. Mm -hmm. So that's where you, I I think you'll continue to see progress in in the area of gun reform, especially if you think about it, the the Democrats picked up seven governorships, eight if you go back a little bit and pick up the, I can't remember, there was one that was a special election. Mm -hmm. So that's a a huge shift. There are, you know, there's an increase in the in the democratic representation in state legislatures. So there's still room for reform there. If you are in the gun control community, I think you're gonna mostly be you know, disappointed if you're expecting big big changes at the federal level. I echo everything Lisa. What I found very encouraging after this recent election is that multiple NRA-backed candidates lost and mm-hmm. multiple Democrats ran on the issue of gun control in addition to other issues, but included that in their messaging and won. I can't remember where I saw this. I want to say it was ABC reported this, some poll post-election. But gun control among voters is the second most valued issues Mm -hmm. in terms of what is informing their choice of candidate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really powerful. I think that speaks a lot to 
the various movements we might be seeing, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the more local and, and state levels, um, just the level of awareness of this issue, um, maybe broader public education efforts, mm -hmm. the research community having more of a say in terms of, um, you know, spearheading some advocacy mm -hmm. movements, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so I see this as a coming together. And also, as Lou was saying, I mean, we see the, the persistence of mass shootings and of the, you know, of daily gun violence has always been there, but certainly the mass shootings that then get s sensationalized in the media, and it's really hard to, you see images, you hear, I mean, in Parkland, kids were Snapchatting mm -hmm. the shooting as it was happening. Mm -hmm. I I cannot get that out of my head, and that was my, I mean, I really can't stop thinking about it. And so when we start to see the sort of the, the persistence of this kind of violence, and you see parents and educators and people, regardless of political affiliation, mm -hmm. being impacted by this issue, yeah, now it becomes something that people care about. And so I think, mm -hmm. I, I wish it weren't the case that we were having to have this issue, of have this conversation, of course, but I, I think it's encouraging that this is on the radar of the public. Um, and several, I saw politicians um, in various, I would say maybe even more purple states, uh, had spoken um, or commented on how a lot of constituents were calling um, about this issue. Like people are, are calling and saying, yeah. this matters to me. <laughs> I, have a, I have a completely false question to ask you, Sonali, which is, so do we have enough research? It seems like we know a lot. <laughs> and, well. and, I, and I'm saying that in part because both of you have been talking a lot about, here's what we know. So, so tell us, do we, do we need more research? What um, don't we know? I'm so glad you asked. Well, <laughs> so um, there's often sort of a phrase that gets misused a little bit, which is that um, the NRA has banned research on gun violence from happening. And that's not actually accurate in terms of what, the, what has actually happened. So just a very brief history lesson. Um, in 1993, there was a pu publication, uh, I believe it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, by a very prominent uh, gun violence researcher. Um, essentially, this his work showed, and it was building, it built upon several studies he had conducted over the previous, uh, over previous years, but essentially showed that possession of a firearm increased the likelihood of, of firearm violence. That publication then led to uh, what is now famously known as the Dickey Amendment, which was implemented in 1996. And it contained language prohibiting, um, rather intimidating, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And that sort of spilled over to the National Institutes of Health, but essentially saying that they could not fund research that would support gun control efforts. So so there was this amendment that was put into play, and it, it, the way it was interpreted um, by those who were in leadership roles at the CDC and in other institutions, as a result, there had been no, it, that language in conjunction with Congress not allocating funds to go towards gun violence prevention research. So it's not just, you don't just have a piece of legislation that says, we don't like the idea of this kind of re research. You also need Congress to say, to allocate funds to make that mm -hmm. research possible. So mm -hmm. it's a two-part piece here. There's some really nice work that's been done. Uh, there was a 2016 article in JAMA that um, Ted Alcorn wrote mm -hmm. that really spoke about sort of this lost generation of research um, in this area. We, If you compare the amount of funding and, and resources that have been devoted over the past two 
decades um, to gun violence prevention work, it, it pales in comparison to any other public health issue. We don't have as much research in this area as we would like, but I, I feel like it's important to, important to acknowledge that there has been some really important research that's been done regardless of those uh, of those limitations. A lot of work around you know policy. There's some really interesting work that's looked at the nature of social interactions mm-hmm. and how they influence gun violence, which is really has been really important. Um, one of our oh, one of our colleagues, he has done a lot of work um, really looking at like what he calls apolitical interventions that show that by reducing um, blighted areas mm-hmm. in cities could actually significantly reduce gun violence um, with returns to taxpayers mm-hmm. and really framing that issue in a very different way. So there are there is really innovative, important progress, mm-hmm. I think, in this area. There's, there's information we have about this issue and about how to prevent it that we didn't necessarily have 10, 15 years mm-hmm. ago. So I think it's important to acknowledge that research has been happening. Research is bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Like, this should be something supported on both sides. Because you know what? The gun rights community makes some very interesting arguments that I would like to see tested. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example. Yeah. Um, the argument that mass shootings only happen, or the vast majority of mass shootings only, you know, tend to happen in gun-free zones. Mm-hmm. We don't have research on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, I did a little bit of this in my book, book yeah. uh, but I would like to see this studied more comprehensively. Mm-hmm. And if they're right, that's great. Then that's something we need to know. That's yeah. something we can change if, if that argument holds, if that hypothesis can be supported. Uh, do areas that have concealed carrying, you know, uh, licensing schemes and that are have an abundance of CCL, you know, permit holders mm-hmm. uh, or licensees, uh, you know, do they in fact experience less violent crime? Mm-hmm. I'd like to know the answer to that I question. Uh, a real big one is um, that, you know, there are a lot of what are called DGUs, defensive gun users, right? Mm-hmm. That is the argument that, you know, that comes out of the gun rights community, mm-hmm. but we only have one piece of research on that. It's mm-hmm. been questioned and criticized. I would like to see that studied, you know, um, a lot more. And I would like to see several studies on this. And so yeah. I, I think that this is something that both sides should be able to come together, yeah. you know, uh, and, and rally around. The one question we, we bounced around um, had to do with the use of science and data um, to two concepts under attack uh, recently. Um, and, and building on this kind of use of research, science, and data, what's the one or what's, what's a misconception or myth that you'd like to correct um, that the public yeah. may ha- hold? I, do, do you want to go for it? Yeah. Well, no, Lou and I each have our, our favorites. Like yeah, we have our, <laughs> I like I have our favorites, it. yeah. But I, I certainly have a bunch, yeah. Well, there's a bunch. Uh, I'll just, I'll share one, I think, fairly quickly. I know we've talked about... Um, We've sort of we've touched on this a little bit, but I think the the common misconception is um, using Chicago as a case study. So, mm-hmm. oh, Chicago has such high rates of gun violence, but they have strict gun laws, and so gun laws don't work. To which I like to point, pull out a map of the United States and show just how close Chicago is to Indiana, and to many other states uh, right directly surrounding Chicago that are. I mean, Indiana is a 30-minute drive. Um, over the, there's no one at the border checking mm-hmm. to see what you've purchased or, or what you're bringing back to Chicago. And you can drive to a state with lax gun laws, purchase mm-hmm. firearms, and come right home. And I think 
that's where the importance of, of comprehensive gun reform at a federal level really matters. Um, I think the the state laws help are important. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think that's something to be underestimated in terms of of their value. But certainly the the federal piece carries weight. I mean, Lou's book talks about the assault weapons ban. That mm-hmm. was federal legislation. We yeah. saw clear drop decreases in mass violence, mass yeah, shootings. Yeah, that chart was impressive. Yeah, that, that chart from your just book, it's really no powerful. Um, and period. you see why why that matters. So I'm not anti-state rights in any way, but mm-hmm. I, I think on certain issues, um, there we have to think about that. Or we need to then talk more, have conversations around purchasing of firearms. And then we go back to the issues of access and showing ID and, and doing background checks. And we then let's go back to those issues. But... Um, that's that's my if we're choosing favorite misconceptions. That's that's mm-hmm. my my go-to sort of pet peeve issue. It drives me drives me bonkers. Yeah, the, the Chicago thing drives me nuts too. Yeah. I mean, I, I have my other you know I have my own. I mean, my area of expertise is mass shooting, so I have like a whole bunch that of like they're basically myths mm-hmm. that you know the NRA puts out there. And the, the NRA is great at this. Like you know, again, it's they come up with these like bumper sticker, you know, jingoistic slogans. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, you know, some of my favorites are, uh, if you ban guns, only, you know, bad guys will have guns in the end, mm-hmm. you know, or an- another one, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And then my favorite from, you know, mass shootings, which is, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, the, after the shooting in Pittsburgh, President Trump came out and he said, if they had protection inside, the mm-hmm. results would have been far better. And this is one of his favorite talking points. Mm-hmm. You know, he has bought into the good guy with a gun, you know, logic, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. You know, um, after after Las Vegas, he said, you've had so many attacks where there was only a gun, a bad person's gun, going in this direction. And if they had the bullets going in the opposite direction, you would have saved lots of lives. Now, of course, the president somehow... I, just like he probably didn't want to listen to the Khashoggi tape, maybe didn't look at the video from mm-hmm. Las Vegas, and there was a lot of it, and there were tons of police officers, and they had guns. Mm-hmm. Good luck shooting up to the 30th floor of you know the, the hotel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work that way. The mm-hmm. guns were there. After Parkland, he said, highly trained gun adept teachers and coaches would solve the problem instantly before the police arrive. Mm-hmm. And he added, if a potential sicko shooter knows that a school has a large number of you know very weapons-talented teachers and others, who will be instantly shooting, the sickle will never attack that school. Cowards won't go there. Problem solved. You know, thank you, Mr. President, for solving the problems of this country. Uh, but It just you know, makes me think there's like a coward network and they just right, let people know, right, don't go right, to that school. Right, don't, right, right. You know, none of it makes sense. Like, there was someone at the Pittsburgh synagogue with a concealed carry license. Mm-hmm. It was the gunman himself, the mm-hmm. killer. Uh, he did not go uh, unconfronted. He was confronted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result of that confrontation, six police officers were shot. They had arms. They were armed. They fired back. They were shot. And, and, and another example is, you know, what happened? There was a hate crime shooting a, a couple of days before the Pittsburgh massacre mm-hmm. uh, in, at a Kroger in, outside of Louisville. Yep. And there you had not one, but two people who had concealed carry uh, weapons on them. They pulled them out. Yeah. Uh, one guy engaged the shooter, mm-hmm. and the police, ar- when they arrived on scene, because of the chaos that was mm-hmm. created, arrested him mm-hmm. uh, as the other guy was getting away, although they did get the guy yeah. shortly thereafter. And then the second guy, he didn't even confront. Like I mean, he came face-to-face with the shooter, yeah. and, the, and the shooter told him, hey, 
white people don't kill other white people. And the shooter and, and, and the defender didn't do anything. He didn't stop him. If there's one thing better than a bad guy with a gun, it's a bad guy without a gun. Mm-hmm. The idea that people will be deterred by the presence of an armed individual, it just doesn't pass the test of scrutiny. Yeah. I remember when we did the, the screening of Newtown, mm-hmm. um, we were really fortunate to have Marianne Jacob, who's an educator at Sandy Hook Elementary School and, and was a survivor of that shooting. And we talked a little bit about this, the, the concept of arming teachers, arming mm-hmm. good guys, and, and how that could be a deterrent. And she said, just let's just picture this. Um, I'm in story time uh, with a group of maybe 18 six-year-olds, and I have a loaded firearm in my holster I mean I don't even know um, and I'm supposed to while managing this group of six-year-olds and engaging in my day-to-day practice as a teacher in the in the chance that a armed person comes in with the intent yeah. to harm and kill I have to have the wherewithal to pull out my gun in that situation respond aim at this person, fire accurately, while also keeping this group relatively calm. I mean, Great. the absurdity of that, if you actually play it out, um, if you start to play out the situations and yeah. and and plan for all the possible contingency plans, it's, it's not um, realistic. And then we also want to ask the question, sort of rhetorically, but is this how we as a community want to exist right. um, with that anticipation of violence always hanging over us? The NRA has bought, wants you to buy into the fear-mongering so that you feel like you need that, but that's not really what reality mm-hmm. is, and I think we want to, to keep that in mind. So, You, you briefly mentioned this, Lou, and I, I think it's sort of been an undercurrent that we've been um, getting at, which is there is a racial component to these ac- accidents that happen with people getting accidentally shot. The, the security guard in Robbins, Illinois, exactly. who was shot, you know, because uh, he picked up the perpetrator's gun and was going right. to hold him at gunpoint so right. that he didn't do anything. And of course, the police busted in and shot him. Yeah, uh, you had the the guy in the in the mall, yeah. right? I mean, so you had what? Tamir but, Rice, right? So four years yeah, ago, yeah, Tamir Rice. So yeah. you know, what did all three have in common? Yeah. Well, okay, all three were holding a gun or mm-hmm. had a gun on their person, and all three were black. Mm-hmm. And then what happened uh, two days ago in Kentucky? You had a guy who was going to go on a mass shooting. They got a tip. They confronted the guy. He pulled the gun. What did they do? They, you know, they they they, they tackled the guy. Yeah. They didn't shoot him. I know. It's, I, it's just, so. I mean, I don't think I'm crazy to say that there's a racial component here. I mean, I'm, you know, I get it. It's anecdotal, right? That's the response that a good scientist will say to me. Okay, Clarivas, but it's all anecdotal. But you know, wh- what do you call a whole bunch of anecdotes? Mm-hmm. You know, a pattern. Yeah, a data set, <laughs> right? And this is again why we need more research so we, we can do. actually really go and look at this yeah. and get a good idea of. Do these lovely little bumper sticker slogans apply equally to to Americans, or do they apply specifically to one segment of our society? I I think you're setting us up for the next next conversation we're all going to have. We are sitting here recording this within a school of education and health and psychology here at Teachers (laughs) College. Um, And I, I, I think it's important for us to remember that because it is an interdisciplinary space in which we recognize that this is everybody's lane. This is an issue that is of interest and should be of significance for all the people who care um, about the the public, right, as, as you so um, thoughtfully put it, Sonali. So last words. Um, we have this last question here about how can listeners to this podcast get involved. I'll either invite you to respond to that or just anything you want to pause us on. Yeah, get in the car and drive. The lane is yours. Yeah. Uh, you know, education and engagement. 
if you've got a strong argument to make and you've got the evidence to back it up, make it. Do the research. Begin with educating yourself. And then when you do that, engage and educate others. Right? I mean, we, we all have the power to do that. And let's have a very thoughtful national dialogue on this. I think we can go a long way. I love this notion that this is everyone's lane because it is. Feeling safe, right? Feeling safe and secure is something you take for granted until you can't. And much like our health, right? And so I would wager that no matter how innovative a teacher or a pedagogy is or how well-resourced a school or a, a community center or a clinic is or any, if you just sort of think about the spaces and sites of practice that um, we as faculty here spend time in or that our students are, are learning about, none of that, none of that will matter if individuals fundamentally don't feel safe. Addressing this as an issue, understanding it, um, and then contributing to thinking about solutions, whether that contribution is really just on on advocacy or person-to-person education, Mm -hmm. right? Dismantling some of these misconceptions Mm -hmm. that that collectively will contribute to a safer community in the long run, which will then in turn allow us to live our lives. It breaks my heart to know that teachers are spending so much time now Mm -hmm. thinking about what they might have to do in in response to an active school shooting when in fact teachers have already so many other things they should be worried about and concerned about with regard to helping kids learn and and grow. And that in and of itself is such an enormous responsibility and now we're adding this layer. That's not necessary. Why we we can, we don't need, it doesn't need to be that way. Feeling safe and and secure is such a fundamental part of, of being a, a human being and, and, and being a productive and thriving individual. And so we want to, um, so I would say, yes, this is everyone's lane. Um, and so learning, and then if you, if you don't know, I say to my students, ask. Um, mm-hmm. if, you don't, if, you, if you're not sure, um, don't make those assumptions. Come, mm-hmm. let's, let's have a conversation or let's research this together, figure it out. Um, and then if you can vote, vote, vote in every election. I said to my students, <laughs> do not come to me and tell me that you were able to vote and you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but being an active, civically engaged member of our communities is, is important. So on, on all of those levels, I would say in terms of how to get involved, there's starting in those ways is, is very important. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Sonali. Thank Thank you, you listeners, for listening. Um, We will make available information about how you can follow the work of Lou Clarivas and Sonali Rajan online. You can read their work. You can read Rampage Nation. You can read Sonali's forthcoming book. Um, You can look for the work that they've already shared. Um, And I would encourage you to... Tune in because we will have another conversation in the not-too-distant future. We want to thank Lou Clarivas and Sonali Rajan for joining us on the Mask Lab podcast to talk about gun violence prevention, safety, and gun reform. You can find all of the texts and links that were discussed today, as well as additional related resources, including information on the Universal Background Checks legislation introduced in the House of Representatives this week by visiting our website, masklab.org. Or you can send us an email at masklab at tc.columbia.edu or tweet at masklab and let us know what you thought about this episode. You can find more from our collective of researcher practitioners, including regular blog posts, news about upcoming screenings and other events, and links to our media and research. Our theme music is Kelp Grooves by Little Glass Men, published under a Creative Commons license at freemusicarchive.org. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Caroline DeVoe, Kyle Oliver, and Professor Lalitha Vasudevan. Thanks so much for listening.